This morning, I invite you to open your Bible. I hope that you have your Bible and you will open it and find with me the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And uh, uh, today, we're going to look into God's Word together, Acts chapter number 17, beginning with verse number 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to, their, to the Areopagus. And <clears throat> they were saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom 
are Dionysius, their Arabogite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word today. And as we look into your word today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and lives. And Father, that you would draw us to deeper faith in Jesus Christ, that we would turn from the idols of our own heart and we would trust in you. Father in heaven, I pray that you remove the blindness in our own eyes and, Father, that we might see Jesus for who he is. And Father, I put, pray that you put a passion in our own heart to confront the lostness and idolatry of this world. And, Father, that others might turn to you, that your name would be glorified in all the earth. It's in Jesus' strong name that we pray. Amen. Well, my friends, I guess I don't have to tell you this, but you know it. We live in a broken, blind, and lost world. This world is messed up, and this world is lost without Christ. If you ever believed that there was such a thing as Christian America, it's gone. Formerly, there was a large percentage of people who believed in church, attended church. They believed in a God, and there was one God. They had some level of biblical literacy and some commitment that God created this world and that there's one creator God. There's a God-centered worldview, and there was a general understanding by a great majority that Jesus is his son. Well, not all might be committed to him as Savior and the Lord, They all did believe that we were accountable and would give an account of our life to a holy God. But that majority is gone. There seems to be no agreement among us about the creation of the world. No central belief that God created the world. No agreement about that creation. And there's this belief that we're here by some randomness some chance, some luck, and not in a holy God. That there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no confession or need confession of sin. There's confusion about who we are, about our identity, our sexuality, our very being. And we worship at the feet of idols of our own making, in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own schools, in our own groups that we identify with. And moral issues are all challenged. Am I telling the truth? In some ways, this is good in this regard. We can't have this false feeling that everybody in America is okay. Truth of the matter is, Everybody in America has never been okay. The only way to be okay is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So we are missionaries in this broken culture. Now today, in our text, we're going to examine Paul as he is in a highly educated, sophisticated, and wealthy, but blind culture, and how this affects Paul 
and what Paul did while he's there. Now, as you look at the text with us, Paul is in Athens. He was waiting there at Athens for Silas and Timothy to come to meet him. Remember, he's in Berea. He'd been in Thessalonica, then he's in Berea. And now the troublemakers have come to Thessalonica, and Paul's forced to leave Berea. And he has some men who take him to the coast, and there he caught a ship and sailed 200 miles to the south to Athens. And so he's alone there in Athens, and he's walking in the city and looking at the city and waiting for his friends to arrive, which will take several weeks before they make their way to Paul. And so Athens is a highest level of culture in classical Greek antiquity. It was the foremost city-state since the 5th century B.C. It was conquered by Rome, but Rome so loved all things Greek that they allowed Athens to be its own city-state, a free city. It was an intellectual center. It was world-renowned. It had unbelievable architecture and literature and sculpture and oratory and philosophy. F.F. Bruce says its cultural status has never been surpassed. Nashville, Tennessee has the moniker that they like, that they are the Athens of the South, meaning they're a place of, of dignity and culture and refinement, education, and an intellectual center. It's it's a place of philosophy and learning. It was home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno. It was uh, culturally prestigious. It was aesthetically magnificent. It was culturally sophisticated, but it was morally decadent and lost. The city was filled with buildings and sculptures and monuments dedicated to a panoply of Greek gods. They had in the city the Acropolis, and on, the, on a high hill set the Acropolis, and it was the town's ancient center, and, and it was seen from long distance away. You could see the Parthenon setting uniquely on top of the Acropolis. They had the Agora there in the city. It was the marketplace, the place of the exchange of ideas. It was a cultural center, a business center, of politics and debate and exchange. It was lined with porticles all around there where there was the trade of ideas and, and philosophers would gather there and people would come to do their business there. And tourists would come and admire all the artifacts and sculpture and engineering. But as Paul walked through and saw all of this and the beauty and the art and the learning and the philosophy... What Paul couldn't get past was the paganism and the lostness and the robbing of the glory of God. And it so impacted him. Now, that's the place, the place of Athens. But secondly, I want you to look at the provocation. Not only what Paul saw when he was in Athens, but what did Paul feel? When he's in Athens. Verse number 16. Now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. And his spirit was provoked within him. As he was beholding the city. Full 
of idols. That little phrase, full of idols, means they were under idols. They were swamped by idols. They were smothered with idols. Paul would later say in verse number 22 when he addresses uh, the council at the Areopagus, he would say, I perceive that you are very religious. He said, you have all these idols. Xenophon said that Athens is one great altar and one great sacrifice, the whole city. A Roman satirist said, uh, satirist said, he says, it's easier to meet a god or goddess in Athens than a man. Hmm. Well, it's kind of true. There were about 10,000 residents in Athens, and there are 30,000 statues to idols in Athens. The Parthenon was huge. It was a feat of engineering. It was beautiful. It was inside it, the statue to Athena whose gleaming spear point was visible, some people say, by 40 miles away. And there, all of the gods of Olympus were worshipped. Apollo, Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, Bacchus, Neptune, the whole panoply of Greek gods. But Paul becomes disturbed, deeply disturbed, provoked, uh, some translations say. It's, it, it means he was almost like to having an epileptic fit about it. He was just so, it just tore him up as he looked at all of these gods. He was being provoked within himself. Now, this provocation, there was not sin in his anger about it, but he knew that it was against the holiness of God and the law of God. Paul was familiar with all of these Greek gods, he was familiar growing up in Tarsus, but he grew up in a culture that, that believed in the first and second commandment, that believed in loving the Lord God with all of your heart, that believed you should have no other gods before him. If you have your Bible, we can look with me to a couple of passages of Scripture. In the book of Deuteronomy, In chapter number 5, Deuteronomy chapter number 5. In verse number 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or anything, any likeness of what is in heaven above or earth beneath, or the water under the earth, and you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Paul believed that. He saw the whole city filled with idols. He realized that they had displaced God in their worship and pursued these idols. And in Paul's mind, they weren't truly just idols. They weren't just stones. They weren't just a figment of imagination. But in Paul's mind was, when you worship an idol, you're worshiping demons. 
And this moved him. It provoked him. That very same word is used, the word provoked, in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that same word is used of God himself when his name is dishonored. You remember the anger of God when the children of God turned toward idolatry, don't you? You remember the book of Exodus, the children of Israel have been led by God's strong and powerful hand out of Egypt, and he's bringing them to the promised land. But they're obstinate, stiff-necked, and rebellious people. Remember how God leads Moses up on the, mount, uh, the, the, uh, the mountain of the Lord to Horeb, and he makes his way up there, and God meets with him. And as he meets with him, he's showing his glory to him. And not only that, he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, on tablets of stone. And remember how they hear this dancing taking place and music taking place? And, and, and what is this sound God says to Moses, and, and there's idolatry, because what happened is below is the people said, what's happened with this man Moses? Will he ever come back down off that mountain? Maybe he's gone or disappeared, and we, who, who's going to lead us in worship, and who's going to guide us now? So they gathered all of their gold articles, and they gave it to Aaron, and Aaron has it smelted, and, and they fashion it into a a golden calf. Do you remember the story? And they are all worshiping this golden calf while Moses is up meeting with God. Do you think that worked out very well for all of them? As a matter of fact, if you want to recall the story, look with me if you'd like to, to Exodus chapter 32. If you have your Bible, Exodus chapter number 32. In verse number 7, Exodus 32, verse number 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, go down at once for your, your people. I, 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 listen close. Moses, your people, whom you brought from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it saying, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they're obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them, and I'll make you a great nation. He said, I'm going to wipe out this people and start all over again. And Moses entreats the Lord. O Lord, why doth that anger burn against thy people, whom thou brought from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And why should the Egyptians speak? With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them for the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger. Change your mind about doing harm to your Thy people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants. Verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm that he said he would do to his people. Listen, God was, it angered Almighty God to see his people turn from serving him to worshiping idols. 
Amen. Why? Because of the very nature of who God he is himself. He says <clears throat> that he alone is God, that his name is jealous, that he is jealous for his people, jealous for his own loyalty. In chapter 34, in verse number 12, it says, Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather, you're to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and play the harlot with their gods, sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite to eat of their sacrifices. So he says, don't make any molten gods. Don't serve any idols. He warns them. He says, I take offense at that because it's idolatry and it's adultery against me. You've displaced my rightful relationship with you because I made a covenant to you. I saved you. I rescued you. I gave my name to you. I revealed myself to you. I made a covenant promise to you like a marriage covenant. And when you break that, then it brings anger to me. It's like somebody, a third party, getting in, breaking into a marriage and destroying it. And that God's anger burns like that because he's a jealous and righteous and holy God. And you're not to have any other gods before me. My friends, when you give yourself to idolatry, it's against a holy God. And he takes it seriously. You remember when the children of Israel were nearing the promised land, and there they play the harlot in idolatry with the Moabites at Baal Peor, and 24,000 people lost their lives because of the wrath of God. Remember the northern tribes when they break from the southern tribes and the land of Israel, uh, the northern tribes, the, the Jeroboam says, we can't go back to Jerusalem worship because their hearts would be with Jerusalem and with Judah rather than their hearts being with me. So I'm going to set up altars. I'll put an altar in Bethel, and I'll put an altar in Dan, and I'll make golden calves at Dan, and we'll have holidays and feasts and altars and temples and high places of worship like Jerusalem. So they'll go there and worship God at those places. Hosea said that God is angry. He will not bless you because of your golden calves in Dan and Bethel and Samaria. That God is repulsed by it because it's demon worship and not the worship of God. Listen close to me. Listen closely. Idols are any person or thing that occupies the place that God should occupy in your life. Idols aren't just a statue. Idols aren't just a wooden figurine. I. The, Paul, the Bible's Paul says in Ephesus that covetousness is idolatry, that greed is idolatry. Idolatry can be your ideology. 
Idolatry can be your desire for fame or wealth or money or power. Idolatry can be your politics, your, your craving for sex, your craving for food or alcohol or drugs. Idolatry can be that you love your parents more than you do God. Listen to me. Idolatry is what you love your children or your grandchildren. I hear people, I've heard people say to me, well, I can't give my life to Jesus because it might make my mom or grandma mad. That's idolatry. Turn from your sin and turn to God. You can make your spouse an idol in your life, your friends, your popularity, your recreation, your possessions. Your religion. So what Paul saw in Athens caused Paul to feel provoked within his heart because he was jealous for the glory of God. Listen, listen close. What should motivate us in evangelism and missions? It's a good question. Some people say the thing that ought to motivate us in evangelism and missions is our compassion for a lost world. Indeed, compassion and care for a lost world ought to move us to share the gospel with people who've never heard the gospel. Amen. Secondly, some said it's, it's because of not only compassion, because of the hopelessness that's in this world. We ought to share the gospel. That's true, so that people would have hope in the gospel. Others say that we need to share the gospel because of the Great Commission that Jesus commissioned us, and we just want to be obedient to the commission that he's given us. That's true. But even a higher level of motive for us to take the gospel to a lost and broken world and share the good news of Jesus Christ is because when men and women and boys and girls do not know Jesus Christ and have not trusted in God as their Savior, they supplant him with the idols of their own heart and mind And those idols take away from God the glory that is due his name. And we proclaim him that his glory might be known in all of the earth. Paul was jealous. He was provoked that the glory of God was being stolen. And he wanted wanted God's name to be great. In all of the earth. Amen and amen. So what does he do? Back to our text. In verse number 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So we see Paul in two places. First he goes to the synagogue. That's his custom. And he's reasoning and debating and talking and dialoguing in the synagogue with Jews and and other worshipers that are in the synagogue about who God is and how God was pointing to the coming of the Messiah and how Jesus of Nazareth is that one that was promised of, like we preached about last week. And so he doesn't throw up his hands and quit in a dark culture. He doesn't blow a gasket. He doesn't weep endlessly. He just gets about the business of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he, 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 he begins to preach positively the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises for all of us. And then he goes into the agora 
or the marketplace where the people gather. In the, it was sort of like the, the convergence of a city square, a mall, city hall, and a business district. That's what the, the Agora was like. Everybody mixed it up in the Agora. And he's there, and he's beginning to talk to them about Jesus. And he encounters some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, a little background on these guys. First, the Epicureans uh, followed Epicurus, and he died about 270 B.C. He considered the gods to be so far remote from men and their lives that they have no interest in what's going on in mankind's daily affairs. And so the world's not really governed by the gods, and the gods don't really care about men. And so we live in this random concourse of atoms, and, and, and there's, no spirit, there's, there's no spiritual intervention by the gods in our own life. And so there's no survival in death, and there's no judgment by God. And so the result of that is pursue pleasure in your life. And the number one thing you can have is pleasure. Make yourself happy and peaceful and serene and avoid pain and passion and fear and just pursue pleasure. Does that sound familiar? And then there's another group of philosophers. They're the Stoics. And the Stoics were followers of a philosopher named Zeno from about 265 B.C. They, they were pantheistic. They believed that there's gods everywhere and there's one soul, like a world soul of God's presence. But that doesn't show in a personal relationship with God. It's more like fate and that this fate has been handed to us. And so human beings, Beings should pursue a higher level of nobility. And if we live in a world of fate and hardship and difficulty, then we ought to live our pursue living dutifully in this world, live with harmony and reason, be self-sufficient, self-reliant, and the master of your own soul. So Epicureans believe we lived in this world of chance and randomness, and, and there's no escape, and so we just pursue pleasure. And the Stoics believed in fatalism, and we just submit to that and endure the pain and have pride in yourself that you're not too passionate. These ideas show up in literature, and a Stoic idea is found in this poem that's often quoted at high school graduations and things like that. It's by W. E. Henley. Listen, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the failed clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but not bow, uh, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, 
how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Hmm. That's not true. You're not the captain. There's one that is the captain. An Epicurean idea is found in a poem by A.C. Swinburne called The Garden of Prosperpine. It goes like this, from too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank with brief thanksgiving, whatever gods may be, that no life lives forever, dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. Well, that will inspire you, won't it? It's that sense of hopelessness. It's practical atheism. It's against this that Paul confronts this. He is not only what he feels, but this is what he does. He confronts it with the truth about God, that there's a caring God at the center of our world, that all human beings are dignit, have dignity and importance, and we're all offspring of a one God that cares about us. And all of us will be judged. And all of us, all of us must repent of our sin and turn to a living God. And this is the message of Paul. Look at the message, if you will. In chapter number 17, it says, and um, they, were, they were calling Paul a babbler. That means he was like, what they're saying is, you don't really know what you're talking about. You've just grabbed other things that you've heard and repeating them, and you don't even know what you're talking about. And they're strange deities. So they bring Paul to this council, and in the center of this council, he gives this speech, a sermon. In verse number 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe you're very religious in all respects. And while passing through and examining the objects of our worship, I found this altar called to an unknown God, and that's the one I'm proclaiming to you. Then verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples, and I think he looked right up at the Acropolis, the Parthenon. They don't dwell. He does not dwell in temples like the myths that you worship. Wow. He is preaching this. He's preaching, first of all, the greatness of God, that God created this world. And folks, that's where evangelism begins. We're here by design and purpose and not by an accident, that a holy, all-powerful, creating God made us. And you're here by design and purpose from Almighty God. If you think you're just here because of luck, and by the way, I don't like the word luck. I hear it all the time. Well, good luck. No, I don't need luck. I want the blessing of God on my life. So not good luck. Go with God's speed, God's blessing in your life. Because we don't live in a world of luck. We don't live in a world of chance. We live in a world where holy God is at work in our hearts and lives and in our world. Amen? So he made us. He knows us. And so 
He says he can't be contained in a house made with men's hands. Secondly, he's a good God. He provides all that we need. Neither, verse 25, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Does God need anything? No. God's not broke since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. He holds us together, as Paul says in Colossians. He sustains life. He doesn't need anyone to sustain him. We depend on him. We need him. He doesn't need us. And you can't live independently of God. And when men displace God, they turn to idols, and their minds are darkened, and they give themselves to deeper sin. Book of Romans, chapter number 1. The book of Romans, chapter number 1. You have your Bible. Romans, chapter number 1, verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God is speaking. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor God and give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of a form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, and their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural function for what is unnatural. In the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. And their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And all they know, they know that the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the downward spiral of sin and idolatry and refusal to acknowledge creator God in your life. That's why we see this downward spiral in our own culture and the darkening of our understanding because it's the judgment of God 
that we're receiving in our own being, our own culture, our own lives because of our rejection of God himself. This is the thing that so provokes Paul because he knows that God loves us and God wants us to have life. But life is not found in the idols of this world. It's found in God himself. God is creator, God is provider, God is ruler. Back to our text in verse number 26. He says, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Oh, no, that's wrong. Wrong. Wrong chapter. Verse number 26. He says, he made from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, perhaps grope, reach out, try to find him. He's not far from any of them. What he's saying is God's the ruler of all the nations. He puts people. He's sovereignly in charge. He's moving in history and geography and races, and that all men are his. And it doesn't matter what your race is, what your tribe is, what your tongue is, what your language is. God made you. God loves you, and God has a plan for you. God is ruler of all of us, and he loves you. Just because we're blinded doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Just because we've pursued other idols doesn't mean he quits loving you. He's jealous for you. He wants you. He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come repentance. God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. God's not trying to throttle you. God's not trying to hold you back. God's not some kind of killjoy. God loves you. He wants you to have life, that life full and abundant and meaningful. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and that life abundant. Full and meaningful. Idolatry is illogical. It doesn't, it's silliness. It, it, it can never save you. Finally, he's preaching about the judgment of God. Notice that God judges us, that we need to seek God, that we're all his, that all of mankind is his, one offspring. By the way, he quotes other poets of Greek literature and poetry. And, uh, and then in verse number 30, therefore, having cooked, overlooked the times of ignorance, God is declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. He calls them to repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And now he says, God will judge the world by one man in righteousness, who is this one righteous man who will judge all the world. It is the one man who was raised from the dead, and that's Jesus Christ. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Our salvation is found in the singular Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah of Almighty God, and your only hope is to turn from your waywardness, your blindness, your idolatry, and turn to Jesus 
and he will save you and give you eternal life. But this same man will judge the world, and those who reject him will stand lost without him and no excuse. This is what Paul is preaching. This is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is what Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, that we need to turn from sin and turn to God. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out and seasons of refreshing may come from the Lord. This is God's plan. Now, what does it mean to repent of sin? It means I change my mind about sin. I don't, I, I, I look at sin a different than I used to look at sin. And I say, you know what? I used to think that that was going to be good for me. I used to think that's what I wanted. I used to think that's what I craved. I used to think that that would satisfy me if I gave myself into that sin. But now I know that's against holy God. And now I know that that injures me. That damages me. That's disrespectful to God. And the one that really loves me is God himself. The one that wants the best for me is God. And I change my mind from that old stinking thinking that I know better for my life than God does. And I turn from sin and I turn to God. I change my mind about sin. I change my mind about self. And I change my mind about God and who he is. Repentance is the reverse of direction. I'm going one way, but I turn in the change of my mind, and I turn back to God. I do a 180, about face, a U-turn in my life, and I turn back to God. And then I embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior. Repent, therefore, and turn to God. And when you turn to Jesus Christ, he will wash away all of your sin. He'll change your heart. He'll change your mind. He'll begin a process of changing in you that's unbelievable. He'll satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. He'll give you purpose and meaning in your life. And your life will bring honor and glory to holy God. And you'll find the life you've always wanted. That's what happens when we repent and turn to God. Satan is a liar. And he tells you you can have life apart from God, and you can't. So Paul begins this plea, and the plea is to turn from sin and turn to God. And so he's, he's begging them, turn from sin and trust in God. If you don't hear anything this preacher says today, I want you to hear this. God loves you. Christ died for you. God made you. God wants you to repent, and God will give you a life that you that only God could dream about for you. It's amazing life that he'll give you. Amen. What were the results? Verse number 32. Here are the results. Some mocked him. Others sneered. Some said, we'll hear about this another time. But verse 34, some joined him and believed. Among them are Dionysius, the Areopagite. I said that wrong. Areopagite. He is one of the counselors, one of the leading citizens on the council. 
and he gives his life to Jesus. Another woman is listed. Her name's Demarius. We don't know anything more about her than this. And many others with him. Not a huge number like in some of the other places. But these, their lives were changed for eternity. My question to you is, do you believe in God? Have you trusted him? Have you given your heart to him? Takeaways today, quickly. Number one, first takeaway is this. Say the takeaways out loud with me, would you? Number one, can you read those? Number one, the answer for all cultures is the gospel. Number two, the idols people erect are an offense to God. Number three, I think that's probably too hard to read from here. God has put into the hearts of all men a desire to find God. Number four, the way to find God is through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Number five, the results of our witnessing will be mixed. Number six, only God can open our hearts to Jesus. These are great truths from God's Word. Father in heaven, have your way in our hearts, in our lives today. If there's somebody who's never trusted in Christ, I pray that today they would turn from sin and trust in Him. In Jesus' name, amen.